0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi,
1: this is Kurt Repincheck,
0: your host at
1: National Parks Traveler. If you were able to find some online time around the Thanksgiving break, you saw that we brought you some tips for avoiding crowds at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park this winter. Traveler's contributing photographer, Becky Latson, provided a great column that summarized her secrets for capturing great photos during your national park adventures, and our friends at Washington's National Park Fund provided an update on the Fisher Recovery Program in Olympic, Mount Rainier, and North Cascades National Parks. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, I talk with Carrie Gunther, the bear expert at Yellowstone National Park, He provides an update on the health of the park's grizzly bear population and how climate change is, or isn't, impacting the bear's diet. Erica Zambello takes us on a short visit to Fort Matanzas National Monument in Florida, and we wrap things up with a quick look around at what is, or is not, happening in the parks as winter draws near. Yellowstone National Park is renowned for its wildlife. From elk and bison to wolves, moose, and bears, the 2.2 million acre park is a wildlife watcher's paradise. Earlier this fall, we talked with Doug Smith, the park's wolf expert, about how those predators are faring in Yellowstone. Today, we've asked Carrie Gunther, Yellowstone's bear expert, to spend some time discussing the park's grizzly bear population. Welcome to the Traveler, Carrie. Thank you. The bear management report says that the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem's grizzly population back in 2014 was 757 bears. Um, That was an estimate, but still it, it was up more than 600 bears from 1975 when the population was estimated at 136 individuals. What estimate would you put on today's grizzly population in the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem? Well, grizzly
2: bears are a hard species to count. Uh, they're generally solitary, and they live in uh, remote mountainous terrain. that's pretty rugged, um, and a lot of it's forested. So they're a very hard species to count. But we still have uh, over 700 grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, uh, and we're still adding up uh, the numbers from this year, so we don't have a, an estimate for 2019 yet.
1: Now, because it is an estimate, I I think uh, Dan Wank once told me, um, Yellowstone's former superintendent, uh, that there could be as many as 1,000 bears. Is that right? Or did I misunderstand him?
2: No, he's correct. Um, Using our data, some other scientists have uh, modeled it in a little bit different way and believe that there uh, could be as many as uh, 1,000 to 1,100 grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem.
1: Now, of course, I think uh, most people who don't live in the region might struggle to grasp exactly what the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is. And, you know, I think it's what anywhere between 18 and, and 30 million acres, depending on what you're including in it. And and so can you say what portion of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem Yellowstone National Park represents? Well, Yellowstone is about 38 um,
2: of the recovery zone that was established by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for where they wanted to recover a viable population of grizzly bears. Now, grizzly bears are well beyond the recovery zone now, Uh, so we have a demographic monitoring area, and Yellowstone Park is about 21% of that monitoring area. So we're actually only a small portion of the area occupied by grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Uh, The ecosystem includes... Grand Teton National Park, and then all the national forests uh, surrounding the park, as well as state and private land and some BLM land and uh, other lands as well. So it's a, it's a huge area.
1: Yes, it, uh, going south into Wyoming, it includes the Wind River Range, right? But not necessarily the Wyoming Range in the southwestern corner of the state? Yeah, the Wind River Range uh,
2: is occupied by grizzly bears, and we're
1: starting to get bears uh, moving down the Wyoming Range as well. But but the Wyoming range is outside of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, is that right? Well, outside of the demographic
2: monitoring area. and uh, You know, there's no one definition of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Um, so some people probably would consider that uh, those bears are part of this population, but it's beyond the area where we can continue to uh,
1: closely monitor the population. So of those roughly 750 uh, grizzly bears in the ecosystem can can we say how many utilize the park? Uh,
2: in Yellowstone National Park, um, we roughly estimate uh, 150 to 200 of those bears. You know, bears don't know those political boundaries, and so some bears never leave the park. There's a lot of bears that have home ranges that overlap park boundaries, and they spend time inside and outside the park. And then a lot of bears never even enter Yellowstone National Park. And you know, the park's not getting any bigger, but uh, the area occupied by grizzly bears is. So there's actually a lot more grizzly bears now outside the park than there are inside the park. And it's not that our population declined. It's just that uh, the number of grizzly bears outside the park has increased.
1: Is there a specific um, size of a home range of uh, a male grizzly bear? I mean, is that is that the constricting factor with how many bears are in Yellowstone? Yes. Um, you know, bears have
2: home ranges that can be hundreds of square miles, and so Yellowstone National Park can only hold so many. And as the population grows, dispersers uh, move out—you um, know, first beyond the park boundary, then beyond the recovery zone boundary, and now they're moving out beyond the demographic monitoring uh, zone boundary.
1: Now, grizzly bears very well might be the most litigated issue tied to Yellowstone and the surrounding ecosystem since the debate over winter use management in yellowstone um, most recently in september of 2018 a federal judge restored endangered species act protections to the ecosystem grizzlies due to several concerns he had with the delisting move made by the u.s fish and wildlife service one of those issues cited by the judge was tied to the lack of gene flow or or understanding gene flow in the greater yellowstone ecosystem now, of course, the the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative uh, has been striving since the 1990s, at least, to provide connectivity between those two regions to enhance the gene flow between bears and other animals along that corridor. That said, how healthy is the genetic profile of the ecosystem's grizzlies?
2: You know, we've looked at, uh, through DNA, um, our genetic diversity, and our rate of inbreeding is less than half of 1%, so it's pretty low. And as the population grows, uh, it's growing to the north. And the northern continental divide ecosystem is also growing. And it's uh, growing to the south. So the two populations are slowly uh, moving towards each other. And we're currently only about 70 miles apart uh, from the northernmost Yellowstone bears and the southernmost uh, northern continental divide bears. So we're getting uh, closer and closer to the point where there could be uh, movement of bears and genetics between the two populations,
1: and and would it take a a number of of bears to to cross that divide and and bring in genetic uh, new new genetic material to uh, to really greatly enhance the genetic diversity in the Greater Yellowstone population?
2: Well, um, there's a lot of debate about how many bears it would take, but uh, some people believe that as, as few as two bears per ten years would maintain the genetic diversity that we currently have. Um, and so, obviously, the more bears making those movements, uh, the better for the health of both populations.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, it sounds like uh, right now there, there's no concerns about uh, an, inbreeding po- uh, an inbreeding problem cropping up with uh, the grizzlies in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem.
2: That's right. You know, currently, our rate of inbreeding is so low that it's not a significant concern Now, looking long-term into the future, if this population were to remain isolated, it would become a growing concern. But with the two populations growing and moving towards each other, um, the future looks uh, pretty bright in
1: that regard. That's good. That's good. Now, some of the good news in the 2018 bear management report is that there were fewer direct conflicts between grizzly bears and Yellowstone visitors, and maybe that's also black bears included as well. At the same time, you're seeing more bear jams as people stop along the the loop roads to watch and photograph grizzlies. How great of a problem is that, and what danger are some of these visitors placing themselves in? And how is the park dealing with that?
2: Yes, historically, um, in the '60s and '70s, we had a lot of bear-human conflicts, and then in the early 1970s, we did a lot uh, to install bear-proof infrastructure, uh, bear-proof garbage cans, dumpsters food storage boxes, food poles in the backcountry. And that has really uh, paid dividends. And Yellowstone Park now has very few uh, grizzly bear human conflicts. Uh, Last year, I think we had three. Um, So it's really minor considering that we have over 4.1 million visits a year now. Um, Our biggest management challenge today is this growing number of visitors. And then uh, these habituated bears, uh, Bears behaviorally are very flexible, and they quickly learn that uh, visitors aren't really a threat. And so they'll be foraging in roadside meadows, uh, just going about their business, and all these visitors are just kind of benign background noise. And so we can get uh, bear jams with hundreds of visitors and vehicles stopped to watch a bear feed in a roadside meadow. And that's our biggest challenge, just trying to keep uh, the road open for traffic uh, but also to make sure that uh, our visitors don't approach, surround, uh, block the path of, or follow these roadside bears as they leave the meadows. We average one bear-inflicted human injury per year, and those are typically uh, in the back backcountry uh, due to surprise encounters between hikers and bears. So far, we haven't had anybody hurt uh, at a bear jam along a road. Bears become pretty tolerant of people in those areas. But still people are often um, not behaving with the best uh, bear viewing etiquette at these bear jams, approaching, uh, you know, too close, uh, even to females with cubs of the year, Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, running back to the car to get a camera or something. And uh, running can sometimes trigger a chase response in bears. So uh, we're trying to keep visitors at least a hundred yards away from bears Uh, But we can't be everywhere at once. And we now have more bear jams and we have staff to manage. So Mm -hmm. a lot of bear jams, park visitors just on their own uh, with a grizzly bear that might be 10 or 20 yards off the road. And uh, so we really depend on the visitors knowing how to behave around bears and to follow proper bear viewing and photographic etiquette there.
1: Yeah, I guess that could become a, a greater issue to deal with as uh, bears become more habituated because might might that lead uh, to give uh, visitors a, a false sense of security that, boy, you know, the bear's not reacting to me, I can get even closer.
2: Yes, and um, we also have the problem when the bears are that close that some visitors, and it's fairly rare, it's a very small percent of our total visitation, but some visitors then feel the need to throw food to bears. Hmm. and uh, then uh, once a bear starts getting fed, then it might start approaching vehicles, and then uh, food-conditioned bears are often responsible for a lot of property damages and occasionally hurting people. So, again, our educational efforts uh, are aimed um, also at teaching visitors not to feed bears, but we'll have uh, one or two cases a summer where somebody will throw uh, some food to a bear. So um, we also try to teach the bears to Uh, stay a little bit away from the road so that uh, it's less tempting for visitors to throw food. Uh, So we kind of try to set boundaries for people and bears at those roadside jams. And so occasionally we will uh, haze bears a little bit further away from the road. Uh, We'll we'll let them cross the road and they can feed in the meadows next to the road, but we don't want them feeding in that uh, real close distance, 10 to 30 yards uh, from the road. And so Uh, We'll use anything from the lights and sirens on vehicles to uh, paintball guns, uh, even bump it up sometimes, to uh, uh, beanbag rounds fired from a shotgun to try to teach the bears just to uh, maintain a little bit further distance from the people. Um, And then we're also trying to educate the people that if the bear comes close to the road, that they should move to continue to maintain that 100-yard distance.
1: Mm-hmm. um i know that. it's
2: it's really difficult uh you know people are here on vacation and a lot of them have never seen a bear before and so they're not always thinking well i need to maintain this 100 yards they're just so excited you know to see and photograph the bear so it's a it's, it's a difficult thing for us uh to get the public to to follow.
1: Sure, sure. I know down in Grand Teton National Park, they have, I guess, a a wildlife brigade, I think they call it, that the the Grand Teton National Park Foundation has helped pull together to basically get a volunteer workforce out there to to work with park visitors and educate them in terms of wildlife watching. Is that something that uh, we might see in Yellowstone in the years to come, or is it already out there?
2: It's already out there. We don't call ours the wildlife brigade, but we have a combination of paid staff and volunteers. Um, and we also use, uh, ambulance drivers and other things. If there's not a, 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 other staff, if there's not an emergency medical situation, uh, we often have our ambulance drivers out there managing people in traffic at bear jam. So we use a combination of, uh, paid staff and volunteers, and, uh, you'll see everything from, uh, you know, biologists to uh, rangers, law enforcement rangers, to ambulance drivers, to maintenance guys uh, helping on these bear jams at times.
1: That's good to hear. We're talking today with Kerry Gunther, uh, Yellowstone National Park's bear expert, about grizzly bears in the park. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
0: Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official non-profit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the Lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com.
1: You know, Kerry, one of the things that uh, seems to come up from time to time is the diet of grizzly bears, and and we know that in the fall when they want to put on the pounds and whatnot, they normally rely on um, the white bark pine seed crop. And for years, we've been hearing that climate change could adversely impact white bark pines, and that this nutritious food source for grizzlies could be greatly diminished. Are, are we seeing that yet? Is that coming uh, true? Well, the long term effects of climate change, um, you
2: know, we're still waiting on uh, to see what happens. But um, we have definitely had uh, a reduction in the uh, total amount of white bark pine due to both uh, white pine blister rust, uh, which is an exotic fungus that's come in from Europe on ornamental trees uh, that kills some white bark pine trees. And then there's a native beetle, mountain pine beetle, uh, that these warmer winters may be allowing to uh, survive longer at higher elevations uh, and affect whitebark pine more. So we've actually seen uh, in Yellowstone Park and the greater Yellowstone ecosystem uh, about a 76% mortality of adult age uh, mature cone-bearing trees uh, over the last decade. Um, That mountain pine beetle epidemic seems to have waned now. Um, we haven't seen much mortality in the last couple of years. Uh, but, uh, again, it's probably these warmer winters. That's, uh, allowing the white bark or the mountain pine beetle to survive up these higher elevations, uh, better, uh, and therefore do more damage to the white bark pine. Um, you know, there was millions and millions of white bark pine trees out there. Uh, we've, like I said, lost about 76% possibly of the, uh, mature, uh, Cone-bearing age trees, uh, but we do do still see bears feeding on white bark. Um, they'll move up to the white bark and feed on it, and they seem to come back a little bit earlier, a couple weeks earlier than they used to. Uh, so it, it appears now that they may be uh, during some years exhausting the supply of white bark pine nuts, where uh, prior to this mountain pine beetle mortality, there was uh, probably more seeds out there than they could ever eat. Um, but uh, the white bark pine um, Again, we we find bear scats within. uh, We see bears moving up to the white bark pine, and then it also affects uh, the number of bear jams we see along park roads. So, in the fall, if white bark pine is good, bears move up to higher elevation where we have fewer roads, and then they're feeding in forested areas where they're harder to see. So, the number of bear jams decreases significantly uh, in the fall of a good white bark pine production year. And last year. 2018 was one of those years, and so we had a lot of bear jams all through spring, early summer, midsummer, and then about the second week of August, uh, the number of bear jams just dropped to almost nothing, and people weren't seeing bears anymore in the fall. And everybody was asking, "Well, where'd the bears go?" Well, uh, they went up to the white bark and were feeding on the white bark. Uh, now this year, 2019, uh, we had poor production of white bark pine in the park, and so we still saw a lot of bear jams uh, into late summer and fall.
1: Hmm. I guess one of the problems with uh, white bark, if, if memory serves me correctly, it, it takes a long time for a white bark to mature to um, seed producing, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, it probably takes you know forty to eighty years before they're really producing a lot of cones. Um, and so, you know, there's still uh, small white bark pine trees in the understory, but it's going to take a long time for them to get
1: up to the uh, large, uh, you know, eighty year old cone bearing sized trees. So what are the grizzlies um, replacing this uh, lost food source with, or diminished food source?
2: You know, grizzly bears are an omnivore generalist, uh, and they eat a lot of different things. So we've documented well over 200 different species that bears eat. Uh, There's probably only 30 to 35 that they eat a lot uh, of. Um, But one of the things we see in the fall when white bark pine trees don't produce a lot of cones is that the male bears... uh, on a lot more uh, elk and bison meat, uh, so they'll both prey on elk and bison, but also uh, usurp kills from uh, wolf packs. And with female uh, grizzly bears, what we see is they dig a lot more truffles, and we definitely noticed that this summer, uh, that with we had poor white bark pine cone production in the park, and we saw our female bears uh, out in the lodgepole forest digging a lot of uh, truffles. Kind of, a, it's an underground mushroom.
1: Wow, I didn't even know truffles grew in Yellowstone.
2: Yeah, they're not the same ones uh, that are so expensive for people to buy, but
1: uh, (laughs) similar. Yeah. Now, of course, um, there are other food sources that um, are out there, such as the army cutworm moths and the cutthroat trout in the tributaries to Yellowstone Lake. And you know, from time to time, we hear that you know the the cutworm moths are down, or that the uh, the lake trout infestation in Yellowstone Lake has impacted the number of cutthroat trout heading into the tributaries. How are those two food sources holding up for the grizzlies? Okay, for army
2: cutworm moths, um, you know, some years when you get uh, a real big snowpack up in the high elevation mountains uh, and a snowpack that remains uh, throughout the summer, then those years we'll see fewer uh, army cutworm moths. But uh, most years, uh, the army cutworm moth population uh, appears to be uh, doing pretty well, and we see lots and lots of bears Um, up there feeding on the moths. So the moths, uh, up to this point anyway, have been a pretty stable food source for bears. Uh, With cutthroat trout, uh, you know, we saw a pretty significant decline in cutthroat trout, and uh, due to the introduction of uh, exotic lake trout, as well as whirling disease, and then some drought years that affected cutthroat trout juvenile uh, recruitment. Um, And the park has implemented a program uh, of gill netting uh, lake trout and removes now 200 to 300,000 lake trout a year in an effort to try to lower the uh, lake trout population so that the cutthroat population uh, can make a comeback. And we're seeing just maybe the first signs uh, that that's paying off. Uh, we've seen in the, you know, for many years, we didn't see bears fishing at all anymore. And in the last few years, uh, there's a couple tributary streams that we monitor where we have seen uh, cutthroat trout returning and spawning and bears fishing in those creeks again. It's not many bears and it's not many fish, uh, but it's an indicator that we might just be turning the corner on that and getting a handle on the lake trout.
1: Yeah, I believe you participated in a in a study that came out earlier this year that the, the grizzlies that relied on those uh, cutthroat trout have indeed turned to um, other food sources around the lake, I, I believe, uh, was it, like you said, elk and, and bison?
2: Yeah, um, you know, again, with grizzly bears being an omnivore generalist, uh, they're they're also very good at diet switching. So when one food is abundant, they feed on it. And if it's, uh, it disappears, they, they switch and feed on other things. Uh, and so with bears around the lake, um, we've seen them preying a lot on elk calves uh, around the lake. And there's some overlap with the elk calf predation period and when they used to feed on cutthroat trout. You know, we're seeing some bears starting to fish again. Um, And there's so many different things that bears eat that it's really hard to uh, come to direct correlations between how the loss or reduction of one food is affecting uh, average litter size and cub survival and that kind of thing. So you really have to monitor all that stuff over a long period of time uh, to start to understand how... Uh, the loss or reduction of one food is impacting uh, the population dynamics of grizzly bears.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, people love to see wildlife in Yellowstone, and I'm not sure if they want to see wolves more than grizzlies or grizzlies more than wolves or, or moose or bison. Um, I know I've often head to the, the Lamar Valley um, as my go-to spot to, to see just about any wildlife in the park. And I've been fortunate enough to see both wolves and and grizzly bears there. That said, uh, where would you suggest people go to increase their odds of seeing a grizzly in Yellowstone?
2: You know, Lamar Valley is one of the the best places and uh, there's a lot of people that go there um, that come here actually sometimes for weeks at a time. Uh, So if you see a big group of people looking through spotting scopes in Lamar Valley, chances are there's bears or wolves that they're watching uh hayden valley is another good place uh where you can see grizzly bears from the road with a spying scope uh and then um uh, along the east entrance road uh out towards uh, sedge bay and mary bay uh there's oftentimes grizzly bears feeding in those meadows along there as well and uh you know bear and wolf viewing has become one of the primary reasons uh people come to yellowstone uh you know starting to surpass uh looking at geysers And thermal features um, and uh, bear and wolf and wildlife viewing has become uh, an industry of itself in the gateway communities around here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bear viewing alone, uh, from a study we did, uh, probably um, pumps about uh, over $10 million into the economies
1: of gateway communities around the park. Every year? Every year, yeah. Wow. And were you able to break down... Where that money is going, is, is it lodging and dining or? Mostly lodging and dining, yes. Okay. Gas, uh, other things, souvenirs. Yeah. Souvenirs. Um, and, and some um, um, guiding services, perhaps? Yes, uh, um, there's a
2: lot of uh, wildlife watching uh, tour guides now operating in the park, um, and that business uh, seems to be growing every year. That's
1: good to hear. We've been talking today with Kerry Gunther, Yellowstone National Park's bear expert, about the state of grizzly bears in Yellowstone National Park. Kerry, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been uh, fun talking with you, and I-, I look forward to bringing you back onto the show.
2: Yeah, and thank you, and uh, I'm glad we can get these these messages out to the the public that loves Yellowstone and loves to see bears here.
0: See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists! Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org.
3: In the mid-18th century, Florida, then under Spanish control, felt threatened by the long and violent arms of the British Empire. Intent on seizing St. Augustine, the British had tried two unsuccessful invasions in 1702 and 1740, and the Spanish had no doubt that they would try again. To block their entry into the city, Florida Governor Montiano ordered the construction of a fort 15 miles to the south that would guard the Matanzas Inlet from the British. Now known as Fort Matanzas, and now a National Monument. Construction finished in 1742, and it has stood ever since. During a swing through national park sites in northeastern Florida and southeastern Georgia, my mom and I stepped out of the car in front of the National Monument Visitor Center, beneath the shade of twisting live oak trees. We had driven halfway across the northern part of the state so that I could finally make it to the fort after years and years of me driving by its exit sign on the highway but en route to other destinations. This was definitely a national park on my bucket list and I definitely wanted that stamp. This national monument is split into two main areas the visitor center nature trails and fort itself as well as protected beach area which is right across the road. We opted to stay by the fort which sits adjacent to the Matanzas River, its blocky gray form visible from the edge of the water. Normally, a ferry provides access to uh, thousands of visitors each year, including many, many school groups. But hurricanes have really taken their toll in this area. Hurricanes Matthew, Irma, and Dorian have all damaged both the ferry dock on the river as well as the beach access road and wooden boardwalk. In fact, on the Matanzas National Monument website, one section reads, quote, days before the arrival of Hurricane Irma, work crews were repairing damage caused from Hurricane Matthew less than a year earlier. Irma washed away all the progress and much more, end quote. That is definitely frustrating. Though Dorian had swept through about two months before my visit, the damage to the ferry had still not been repaired. So we stood at the edge of the dock, gazing across the river at the imposing fortress. I am just going to say it, the actual construction of the fort is a bit in the shape of a giant toilet seat. There's a high rectangle set exactly perpendicular to a lower, wider rectangle construction. The fort is about 50 feet on both sides and 30 feet tall, built out of a local building material called coquina. To create this shellstone, local oyster shells were burned for the mortar line. After gazing at the fortress, we took a spin around the nature trail that takes visitors through rare coastal hammock and then to the edge of the river. I love, love, love boardwalks, especially the higher perspective they give of the surrounding trees. The forest here felt truly magical, full of a mix of live oaks, red cedar, sable palm, saw palmetto, and more. Spanish moss hung down from exposed branches, swaying slightly in the breeze of the early afternoon. A few other walkers joined us, passed us, went behind us, but to be honest, we mostly had the enchanted green space all to ourselves. National park sites that protect historic and cultural areas often play a crucial role in protecting natural resources as well. Why are coastal hammocks so rare in Florida? Because, of course, waterfront or near-waterfront property is popular, and they are cut down to make room for condos, hotels, and McMansions. At this park site, we could experience remnants of a forest that have grown in northeast Florida for thousands of years. Since the beach access to the Atlantic Ocean was closed, we drove up the road a short ways to see the waves from a small public park, but were quickly driven back to the car by the pounding surf and whistling wind that heralded a cold weather front that had recently moved through the region. No matter, we had one more national park site to see that day, and waning daylight. In a way, Mom and I saw those two parks in reverse chronological order. Fort Matanzas was built in 1740 after St. Augustine and Castillo de San Marco had been attacked multiple times. Another national monument, this large fort, sits next to the bustling St. Augustine. Since we visited on a long weekend, the city was absolutely packed with people streaming past stores and restaurants in the historic district. And it took us a long time to find a parking place, which I usually don't say for small national park sites. The fort actually provides some welcome space adjacent to the densely clustered buildings. Again, it's right on the water, and the fort was meant to protect the people of St. Augustine from attack. Built from 1672 through 1695, the fort is built in what is known as the bastion style, which looks a bit like a star from above. Meant to both defend against and launch cannons, the fort was also constructed with coquina. Tours are available of the inside of the fort, but because there was a beautiful sunset, we actually opted to join a parade of people of all ages, making a slow circle around the edge of the fort. School groups mixed with tourists, mixed with locals, taking their usual evening stroll just a few dozen yards from where multi-million dollar sailboats bobbed in the waves of the Matanzas River. From the bottom of the fort, we could look in towards the moat area, which is basically now a green lawn. Even when the fort was in use, though, this area could be kept dry, because during sieges, townsfolk crowded into the fort with their livestock, determined to wait out the invading forces for weeks if necessary. At least in Florida, living in a rock fort wouldn't be too cold, though even from the outside it seemed like it could be very, very damp. In some places, water cascaded down the outside walls, leaving a trail of bright green moss in its wake. While Fort Matanzas feels quite out of the way at the inlet to the river, Castillo de San Marco is part of St. Augustine, just as the church and historic buildings are a part. So often these sites and the history they represent fade from view as population centers shift. But hundreds of years later, the visitors and locals interact with Florida's somewhat violent history as they explore the fort or merely walk by its imposing walls. Because history walks alongside 2019 here, ghost tours are very, very popular. This is Erica in Northeast Florida for National Parks Traveler.
0: The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center. All set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org.
1: What's going on across the National Park System? That's always a good question as the seasons change, in this case, from fall to winter. At Cedar Breaks National Monument in Utah, heavy snows and drifting have led to closure of State Route 148, which connects the monument to Utah Highways 14 and 143. Park staff say drifts and ice have accumulated on the road to the point where it has become unsafe to allow vehicle traffic. Although the scenic road through the park is now closed, vehicles can still access the northern side of the park via Highway 143 in the town of Brinehead. State Route 143, which connects Parawan to Panguitch, will remain open throughout the winter. But the public should be aware that this route temporarily closes during and immediately after heavy snowstorms and periods of blowing snow. As the snow continues to build, Cedar Break Scenic Drive will be transformed into a marked and groomed snowmobile route, and the rest of the park will become a winter playground for those on snowshoes and cross-country skis. In New Jersey, visit Morristown National Historical Park on December 12th for the festive Sing We All Merrily, A Colonial Christmas, presented by Linda Russell and Company. The program begins at 7 p.m. at the park's Washington Headquarters Museum at 30 Washington Place in Morristown. During the presentation, Linda Russell and Company's holiday concert will bring to life Christmas's past. While Christmas was outlawed in 1659 by the New England Puritans, down in Jamestown, Virginia, the Englishman John Smith noted a very merry celebration held by the settlers there. Christmas in colonial times was kept, or not kept, according to one's religious background and country of origin. The joyous and heartfelt performance, Sing We All Merrily, will explore the traditions of the holiday in early America through English carols, American folk hymns, dance tunes, and drinking songs. Quotes from diaries, poems, toasts, and wassail recipes are interspersed with music played on the hammered dulcimer, mountain dulcimer, fiddle, cello, and limberjack. There really are no bad seasons in the national park system, just seasons that might challenge you a bit more than others. With that understood, you might be pleased to learn that the Oregon Inlet Campground at Cape Hatteras National Seashore on the Outer Banks of North Carolina will remain open year round. This campground usually closes after Thanksgiving weekend, but this year it will stay open for the entire year as the seashore evaluates a new camping opportunity. In northern Wyoming and southern Montana, the Cane Christmas Bird Count will be held at Bighorn Canyon National Recreation Area on Saturday, December 21st. If you can attend, plan to meet at the Bighorn Canyon Visitor Center in Lovell, Wyoming at 7 a.m. to check in, select a route, and enjoy a hot beverage. Those planning to count birds should bring binoculars, bird books, spotting scope, camera, clipboard warm clothing and footwear, hat and gloves, lunch and plenty of water and or warm drinks. The bird count will end at 4 p.m. Participants are invited to hang around for the results and share a potluck dinner. If you plan to join the group for dinner, please bring a dish to share. The Kane Christmas Bird Count Circle is centered around the old town of Kane and extends from roughly Moncure Springs on the west side to Sandraw near Lovell. It includes a good portion of yellowtail habitat Pheasant season will still be open, so don't forget to wear your hunter orange. Four-wheel drive vehicles are recommended. If you don't have a four-wheel drive vehicle, park staff will try to pair you with a team that does have one. The National Park Service has announced the reopening of the Princess Ditch Trail at Whiskeytown National Recreation Area in California. This trail connects to a network of trails on the west side of Redding, California, including the Bureau of Land Management's Mule Ridge and Swayze recreation areas. Two bridges along the Princess Ditch Trail were burned in the car fire, which limited access along the trail. With rehabilitation funding from the Burned Area Emergency Response Program, Whiskeytown's trail crew worked alongside personnel from the Redding Smart Business Resource Center, Northern California Indian Development Council, and Lawson Volcanic National Park's trail crew in rebuilding the two burned bridges and rehabilitating the 1.9 mile trail. Hazard trees along the trail still exist, and you're advised to be alert while using the trail, especially during windy days. The Princess Ditch Trail joins the list of 10 other trails open to the public at Whiskeytown. Finally, the future of recreation was celebrated in Mojave County, Arizona, last month, as multiple city, county, and federal agencies gathered to break ground for the Arizona Heritage Trail along the Colorado River. This multi-use trail will travel through Lake Mead National Recreation Area and across the Davis Dam, connecting to the Colorado River Heritage Trail in Nevada. The idea for the trail began in 1999 when the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation developed a model plan for the Loop Trail project. In 2012, the Nevada portion was completed and in 2016, the Bureau of Reclamation was awarded a $6.7 million Southern Nevada Public Land Management Act grant to complete the Arizona portion. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be discussing the longest terrestrial migrations on Earth, some of which pass through national parks. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks.
0: This collection is the number one selling national park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Traveler's podcast. Visit them at OrangetreeProductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas.